Good to see you. Yeah, so we've had a break from Mark's Gospel, haven't we? Uh, some of that was planned, some not. And thanks to Ross and Toby and Dan for bringing God's Word to us from Isaiah and from, oh no, from Hebrews and Psalms, wasn't it? Uh, and yes, I had a heart attack four weeks ago. Uh, I'm recovering well. I'm running again, which is really cool. It's amazing what a stent can do, I tell you. Um, and excited to be back, having lots of thoughts about where to from here for our church. It's nothing like a few weeks off to get the, the excitement going again. Um, thanks for your prayers, and uh, yeah, exciting to be here. A quick recap. Um, we've were back, way back when, going through the seven conflict stories of Mark chapter 12. And it's the last few days of Jesus' life. Things are really hotting up. The religious leaders are trying to get Jesus to do or say something where the Romans will either arrest him or better still crucify him or the crowds will turn against Jesus. Um, or best case scenario, both. Uh, and so they come to Jesus and start to grill him with questions, trying to trap him. Which is a bad idea. Never play a game of wits with Jesus. You will lose. Uh, he is absolutely brilliant. So first, the Sanhedrin, if you remember, come and challenge his authority. And Jesus throws a grenade in their beehive and tells the parable of the wicked tenants, which is just a scathing indictment of the corruption of the Jewish leaders of that time. Then last time, the Pharisees and Herodians come with a loaded questions. Is it right to pay imperial tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus gives this brilliant answer. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And that's the theological equivalent of Kung Fu. <laughs> Next, the Sadducees come with another slippery question about resurrection, chapter 12, 18 to 27. hope you can follow along. Before we get to the text, a bit of background on the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the most powerful group within Israel at the time of Jesus, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not in power. It was the Sadducees who were the ruling kind of elite class of Israel. They were the chief priests and those associated with them. And their philosophy had developed in the two centuries before Jesus. Um, they were very wealthy. Um, we can see one of the, one of the um, uh, homes of a chief priest. So they were very wealthy people in that society of Jerusalem. The Romans liked to rule different countries through local elites. And so they ruled Israel through King Herod the Great. This is King Herod the Great. And he was the biggest warlord in the first century before Jesus. And so the Romans said, well, you be king and you can do our dirty work for us. Um, but Herod knew, and this is Herod's palace at Caesarea Maritima. 
That's his main palace on the coast. And then at Jerusalem, that's his palace there, adjacent the temple up there. And the Sadducees basically hung out in the temple. And Herod, even though he was king, this is before Jesus, uh, he knew that he had to do business with the Sadducees and collaborate with them because the temple was the centre of Judaism. So Herod knew that he had to work with the Sadducees and so the Sadducees came to power um, dramatically. And so there's a lot of jockeying for power between the house of Herod, Pilate, who is now the Roman governor, and the Sadducees. So those are the main power blocks in uh, Israel and particularly in Jerusalem at this time, at the time of Jesus. So the Sadducees are a precarious aristocracy and as such they're arch-conservatives. They like things the way they are. They love the status quo. And as far as they were concerned, the idea of resurrection was a new and dangerous idea. They believed that the resurrection was not taught in the five books of Moses, the Torah. In a minute, Jesus will prove the resurrection from Moses, from the Torah. Uh, but as far as the Sadducees were concerned, resurrection was a new doctrine. It had come up particularly in the strange recent book, Daniel, the prophet. And they wish people would not study Daniel because it's full of dangerous ideas like that God, that the kingdoms of this world will be done away with and God is going to establish a new kingdom. Um, and, but the Sadducees didn't want that. They wanted things to continue as they were. And it's strange for us because when we hear that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, we think they must be liberals uh, because it's the theological liberals in our day who don't believe in the resurrection. Um, but the, the Sadducees were not liberals. They were arch-conservatives who thought resurrection was a dangerous new idea. It's dangerous to believe that God will make a new world and raise people from the dead and that if you give your life for God's cause, he will raise you again. That is a dangerous idea which encourages people to do very dangerous things. Um, and so they didn't want that. They wanted the status quo. They wanted things to continue. And of course they didn't. They didn't continue. People did rise up radically. So the Sadducees only accepted the five books of Moses as the word of God. They didn't accept the prophets because the prophets are full of dangerous ideas like a Messiah coming, the kingdom of God coming and the resurrection coming. And that's dangerous, revolutionary stuff they did not want a part of. So the Sadducees are the guardians of the temple. They want it to continue and they see Jesus as a threat to their power base, which he certainly is. Because through Jesus, God has been saying that the temple 
will be destroyed, that the kingdom of God will indeed be set up. <laughs> and so they come to Jesus seeking to disprove the resurrection and to trap him. So let's look at this and work through the text. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, if you're new to the Bible, in the law of Moses, there's what's called leveret marriage. In ancient agrarian cultures, if a woman married and then her husband died before, before they could have children, she was in a terrible situation. She couldn't go out and get a job. She didn't have children to care for her. And because she'd been married, it was unlikely to get somebody else to marry her. And therefore, in Deuteronomy 25, Moses says, if a man dies leaving his wife with no children, his brother is to marry her, keep her in the family, and to provide children for her. And it was a merciful way of protecting widows, which was a huge problem in the ancient world. So this is what the law of Moses commanded. And so the Sadducees bring up this law from Deuteronomy and then they lay out the mother of all hypotheticals trying to disprove the resurrection. Have a listen. Verse 20. They say, Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died leaving, without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the, with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So this is their depressing hypothetical story. And so they ask, verse 23, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Uh, so they're saying, therefore, the resurrection is absurd. The resurrection just doesn't make sense. It's silly. Because it can't be that she's married to all seven brothers in the resurrection. The law of Moses forbids that. And yet she is married to all seven. And the Sadducees think they've disproved the resurrection. And then verse 24, Jesus replies, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And this is a full-on slam, isn't it? Of the Sadducees in front of tens of thousands of people in the temple area. The Sadducees are not only the well-educated people in Israel, they are experts in the law of Moses. They've memorised the first five books of the Old Testament verbatim. And yet Jesus says flat out to them, you are in error for you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. 
And then listen to Jesus' answer to their question, verse 25. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, firstly, this is easy to misread. Jesus is not saying that at the resurrection will be androgynous. Angels in the scriptures have gender. So we won't be sexless in the resurrection. Also, he's not saying we'll be spiritual beings in the sense of having no body. You know, floating on the clouds somewhere up there. Paul makes it crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that at the resurrections we'll have spiritual bodies. (laughs) We'll have a body, but it's spiritual, meaning immortal. We'll have bodies which are physical, but spiritual in the sense that the spirit fully animates them so that we will never die. But we will have bodies. So Jesus isn't saying we'll be like the angels in that we won't have bodies. Jesus' point is that at the resurrection, life is not just the continuation of life here. And this is the mistake the Sadducees were making, thinking that life will go on in the resurrection much as it has in this life. But Jesus is saying, no, the resurrection is going to mean complete transformation. Yes, there is continuity with this life, but also discontinuity. Um, The resurrection is the top-to-bottom overhaul of our bodies and of the whole creation. It's going to be transfigured and transformed into some whole new other reality. The analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 is of a seed becoming a plant. Um, that the body that we have right now on this and the earth that we're on right now is but a glimpse of what they will be in the resurrection. And in the coming world, part of that transformation is that there won't be marriage. And this is Jesus' point in his comparison with angels. We'll be like the angels, neither marrying nor being given in marriage. Now, is that exciting to you? doesn't sound so exciting, does it? What it sounds like is that in the resurrection we'll all just be friends. Think of how much less complicated life will be in the resurrection (laughs) if all will be is platonic relationships. That's kind of a bland future to look forward to. But that can't be what Jesus is saying. Because verse 29 says, you do not know the power of God. Sadducees, your problem is you have no idea of the magnitude of the transformation that God is going to bring to this world, to the creation, to our bodies. And part of that is there's neither going to be marriage nor being given in marriage in the resurrection, which can't mean that we're going to have less intense love than we have now in marriage. The resurrection life can't be less than the rapture, the sex, the oneness that is involved in marriage. And everybody's just going to be friends. He can't be saying that 
Because Jesus says, you do not know the power of God. Let me tell you about the power of God. In the resurrection, um, we'll have an absolute incredible intimacy with Jesus Christ and all those who love him. And that intimacy and that oneness and that rapture of that relationship will make the greatest marriage and the greatest sex in this life look like nothing in comparison. The greatest erotic sense of ecstasy and oneness and closure in this life will seem just like a, a dewdrop compared to an atom bomb. Jesus says the resurrection is a world of love so incredibly powerful that it will be beyond our experience of marriage. Vastly beyond. And our love lives aren't going to be less than marriage. More than marriage. Does that mean that you won't know your former spouse? No, of course you will. It's just saying that there's going to be such a depth of love and oneness and delight in each other and in God, it will make the most rapturous moment in the best marriage in the history of the world look like nothing in comparison. That's the promise of the resurrection. One of the great things about teenagers is they, they say, oh, we're go I'm going out. And the parents ask, uh, where? Oh, I don't know where, we're just going out. How long? Oh, I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and what's so great about teenagers is that it doesn't matter where they're going, what they're going to do, um, how long they're going to be. All that matters is who they're going to be with. Who needs to know the details when you're with people you want to be with? And will be with the one who is love. Jesus Christ who died for us. Who lives for us. And when Jesus says after the resurrection there will be no marriage or being given in marriage. Of course there will be one marriage. He and us. And he's the way into the deepest love. The most unfathomable closeness. Intimacy, rapture, delight, closure, ecstasy. With him, with the Father, in the Spirit, and with one another. So Jesus is essentially saying, Sadducees, your entire vision of the resurrection and the coming world is all wrong. And then he goes on to say, verse 26, now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses? This is another slam, isn't it? Haven't you read Moses? He says to the experts in Moses. In the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now this is genius. 
He lays out a case for the resurrection for the, from the Torah, from Moses. Um, the one part of the Bible that they believe in. Haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now, if you're a critical thinker, at first this interpretation sounds like Jesus is reaching, right? Like he's getting a whole theology of resurrection from one sentence that doesn't even mention resurrection. And it's, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when we take a closer look, Jesus is absolutely brilliant here. I've got three points as we tie this all up. Firstly, the line is, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How could God say that I am the God of Abraham unless Abraham is still alive? He must be still alive. And Isaac and Jacob must be still alive somehow in the presence of God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Secondly, this line, I am the God of Abraham, is from the book of Exodus, which is all about freedom from slavery in Egypt and how the Lord, the creator God, is going to keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and lead them and their sons and daughters, that is Israel, into the promised land. Now, how can God keep his promise to lead Abraham and his sons and daughters into the promised land if Abraham is dead? Or even if he's alive in some sense, but isn't going to be resurrected and enter into the, the ultimate promised land of the new creation. Jesus is saying, listen, even if the resurrection isn't explicit in the books of Moses, it's implicit. God will keep his promise. God will never break his word. Which means Abraham, who at the time of writing and to this day is still alive in God's presence in what Jesus calls heaven but he is yet to experience resurrection right he's waiting for the day when he will be raised when Abraham will be raised and enter the promised land because God has promised it third point to make here is that Jesus then says in verse 27, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Which is a brilliant line. Do you see the force of what Jesus is saying? Maybe not at first, so let's, let's think this through. When God appears to Moses in the book of Exodus, he says, I want an intimate covenant personal relationship with you and the people of Israel. Um, and of course he already has a relationship 
with Israel. Uh, he is the creator. They are his creation. He sends the rain and the sun and they pray to him. It's not like they're not already in some kind of relationship with God. But, he come, but God comes to Moses and says, I want a personal relationship with you and the people. An intimate covenant relationship. And I want it so intimate and so covenantal and so personal that we can use possessive pronouns and prepositions with each other and say, I am yours, you are mine. That's what he says to Moses. I am your God, you are my people, you are my treasured possession. See, how do you dare talk about owning another person? When can we use possessive pronouns and prepositions? You'll hear me say about Glenda, I am hers and she is mine. Um, That's really significant. How can I talk about another human being as if I own them? The answer is, well, in the English language, we're only allowed to use possessive pronouns and prepositions when there's been a deep, voluntary self-giving and where the relationship is so intimate that she is mine and I am hers. And God comes to Moses and says, I'm entering into a covenantal relationship with you so that you are my people and I am your God. And Jesus says, when God enters that kind of covenantal relationship with someone, that kind of love relationship, think of the implications. It means our relationship can never go into the past tense. When you love someone, really love someone, whether it's a baby or a child or a spouse or a friend, it's the greatest horror for that relationship to go into the past tense. We want to say, I have a son, not I had a son. I have a spouse, not I had a spouse. Because when we love someone, we don't want that relationship to ever go into the past tense. We don't want that relationship to end. We don't want anything at all to come between us. But we can't control that because we're just human beings and limited. But what if God loves us that way? What if God is committed to us in that way? What if God is in a possessive relationship with us where he has given himself to us and we have given ourselves to him. Well, that means that our relationship with him can never go into the past tense. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. 
He will never allow us to be separated from Him. Do you see the force of this? God can't be the God of the dead because there's a covenant of love that He has made with us. And He is God. And God can never be the God of the dead. God can never say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. When he's speaking to Moses, he talks about his, present, his relationship with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the present tense. Because when God puts his love on us, when we enter a relationship with God, that relationship can never end. God will never lose what is precious to him. Ever. And you and I might, but God won't. He's God. Is God's love less than ours? Of course not. And if we can't bear ourselves to let the ones we love in this way ever leave us, how could God? So Jesus is saying something very foundational here and very amazing. The love of God makes our existence absolutely solid. We will permanently be in relationship with God forever now. See, why does the Pinocchio myth resonate with us? What's the Pinocchio myth? Pinocchio is a puppet and he's not a real boy. But he says, if I could get somebody who is real to love me, it will make me real. And he wants to be real. And so he says, if I could get a real mama and a real papa, a real person to love me, then I'll become a real boy. And without God's love, his covenant love, we're just passing away. We're just sand on the, on, in the sea. We're just shadows and dust. And yet there is somebody who is real, who is permanent, who loves us. And therefore, we have become permanent. We are real. We will last forever. Because our relationship with Him will last forever. Do you see how Jesus' answer is just, just amazing? It's an absolute slam dunk. There can be no other arguments. And when you think about it, it's not the answer we give people. Like, it's so different to the old hellfire preaching. The old hellfire preaching used to go, there's an afterlife, heaven or hell, and without God, it's going to be pretty awful. So you better get into a relationship with God, and then you'll have a nice afterlife. That's the logic of the old hellfire preaching. But Jesus goes in the complete opposite direction. He's saying, get into a relationship with God 
And you will know not only that there's an afterlife, but that he will raise you from the dead and make a whole new creation. Get into a relationship with God, you will know that. When you are grounded and rooted in the love of God through Christ, you will know it intuitively and you will know it logically. That God can never let you go. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. God cannot be the God of the dead. Slam dunk. <laughs> Pharisees don't know what to say. And Jesus wraps up with a straight out rebuke to the Pharisees. You are badly mistaken.